Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're exploring the life and work of Robert E. Howard. Before we get into all that two-fisted stuff, however, what is going on? So, Scott, I understand you're going to be having a go at the October Horror Movie Challenge again this year. Yes, God help me. I didn't learn my lesson from the last few times. And once again, I am preparing to watch a brand new horror film every day, something that I've not seen before, not something new. Some of the films that I've got picked out go back to the 1930s. But the important thing is that it's something that I haven't watched before. Then I am going to write a review and post a review of each one on BlasphemousTomes.com on a daily basis. This, in previous years, has been a lot of fun and has left me absolutely exhausted at the end of the month. I'm sure this year will be no different. So, if anyone wants to join in the fun, then we'll be discussing this, I think, on an ongoing basis on our Discord server. I'll be posting stuff on Twitter and maybe on Facebook as well, if I can actually face using Facebook, no pun intended. And... I'd love to hear from the rest of you what films you're watching, or if you've seen any of the films I'm discussing, what your impressions are, or just generally to talk about horror films, because I like talking about horror films. I'm just boggled by the fact there's 31 horror films you haven't seen already. (laughs) Have you seen how many horror films come out on an ongoing basis? Take a look through the horror film section on, say, Prime Video. Like 95% of them are films I've never heard of before. They're really cheap, amateurish films that people have put together for like five pence. And the vast majority of them are... uh, just the cinematic equivalent of toxic waste. But there are enough good ones to make the whole process worthwhile. It's just, you have to be, I think, really quite selective about what you watch. Mm. Tiff has a habit of going through Amazon Prime, going through that section occasionally on the rare evening that we've got something that we want to sit down and watch. And normally has decided whether she wants to continue watching some of those films by about the first 30 seconds. I'm not saying that every film that is an amateur production is bad. There are some really great low-budget amateur films out there. But the vast majority of them are made by people who just don't have a clue what they're doing, and it shows. And from that opening bit where you can hear wooden deliveries, see you know really badly framed scenes where it looks like it was shot on someone's camcorder from the 80s, as soon as you see all those elements come together, it's generally, generally a good indication that you should back away cautiously and hit the stop button as quickly as possible. But you like necromantic. I do. <laughs> you just defined it. <laughs> That's why I said that you can't take all these indications as a 100% guarantee, because there are absolute gems out there that are made like that. I think you were right first time, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I will hear nothing bad said about the works of your book, right? Well, only if you put cotton wool in your ears, you won't, but okay. <laughs> uh, I guess you could say they're dead boring. Ah, oh, 
two drums and a cymbal just died falling off a cliff. Yeah. yeah, that was painful. It's that time again. Final call for submissions for issue eight of the Blasphemous Tome. If you have any pieces of writing up to about 500 words or so, or any black and white artwork, please send them to us at submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. And of course, we are now putting out two tomes a year, so if you don't have anything ready in time, then don't worry about it. There will be another tome along in the middle of next year. So, this time round, writing duties fall to our very own Scott Dorwood. What horrors have you got prepared for us this time? I have the worst horror of all. London Public Transport. So, I'm writing a scenario... Well, I'm writing it up. I actually wrote and ran it for the first time last year for How We Roll, for a live event. It's a scenario called The Night Bus that takes place in contemporary London and involves a bunch of characters, well, on the night bus after a night on the piss heading back to the suburbs in the southeast of London. And yes, the whole thing kicks off around Penge. What greater horror can there be than Penge? Well, I did have a, an idea for us. Well, probably not a similar scenario at all, Scott, but a similar sort of premise with the three words that I think instill the most horror into probably British people. I don't know if this translates abroad, but replacement bus service. <laughs> yes. That's the real horror. This is where trains, late at night, you go to get on the train, there isn't a train, it's been replaced by a coach, which then seems to take all the B roads and go through every bloody small town. And oh my God, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Little known fact, every single replacement bus service in the UK is driven by Joe Sargent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember having only taken a night bus once in London in my life, where I'd gone down to a game that I'd been playing in, or running one of the two anyway. And my plan originally was, I know it's going to end up fairly late, I'll just go to Euston, stay there all night, reading, and then get the train, the first one out in the morning the next day. Then found promptly various people talked me out of this crazy plan and decided you can come back to our place and sleep and then get the train back the next day. Said person lived a long way away from the venue and we ended up having to take three buses connecting throughout <laughs> three different times. That was an experience. Not one I wish to repeat <laughs> any time yeah. again. Now, if you're just here for the Robert E. Howard and you're listening to us ramble on about buses... You're probably thinking, when do we get to the content? Well, let me tell you something. In research for this show, I've been listening to a number of podcasts. I just put Robert E. Howard into my uh, podcast app thing. And um, it spewed up a few shows I'd never heard of. And I don't like to be like in a glass house throwing stones. You know, we are recording a podcast here. But man, one of the shows, they talked about shit for 30 minutes before they even mentioned Robert E. Howard. <laughs> and I was like, I just fast forwarding on. Are we going to get to Robert E. Howard? Because that's the bit I'm interested in. I'm sure they're lovely. No disrespect to them. But okay, let's move on. We, we only lasted five minutes and that's dead on five now. Yeah, <laughs> we're five minutes into our recording. And now I'm going to say... And now on to our main topic, Robert E. Howard. In previous episodes, we've discussed H.P. Lovecraft, obviously, and Clark Ashton Smith, two of the so-called three musketeers of weird tales. So it's long past time we looked at the third musketeer, Robert E. Howard. He's obviously best known as the creator of Conan, 
But he was a fantastically prolific and varied author who covered up a lot of literary ground in what was really quite a short life. As well as surviving into print, his stories have spawned films, comics and games. His creations pepper Call of Cthulhu and the mythos in general. But who was he and what made him such a unique writer? Of the three musketeers, Howard is the one that's most likely to wield a musket. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So in researching this episode, we've drawn upon a number of sources. Primarily, for me at least, my main source was Blood and Thunder, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard by Mark Finn, which I recommend very, very highly. If you've got any interest in Robert E. Howard, this is a sizable biographical overview of his life and of his work, drawn a lot from the reminiscences of people who knew him. It's fantastically well-researched. If you're interested, read that book. Paul, you read, what was it, A Means to Freedom? Yes. How big did you say your book was? 400 pages. I'll see you that and raise you about another 600 pages. Fucking hell. A Means to Freedom is a two-volume hardback collection from Hippocampus Press of the correspondence between H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Pretty much all of it in uh, two large volumes. And, I mean, I think... Talking about Blood and Thunder, that's quite a, a good read. Mm. A lot of a means to freedom. There's good stuff in there, but it is letters. So at times they go into great... Well, some of Lovecraft's letters are like probably as long as some of his longer fiction, you know, like 30, 30, 40 pages. And I don't know, to me, quite dull in places, quite a hard slog where they get onto their their various theories about so-and-so and gainsaying each other about... I don't know, all sorts of uh, quite detailed topics. But then they get on to kind of more general biographical things and and I kind of get engaged again. So I kind of scanned through some of it. Didn't get through all of it, got through quite a bit of it, got some quotes, some interesting things. And Matt, you dug into Nameless Cults, didn't you? Yes, the Cthulhu Mythos Fiction of Robert E. Howard, edited by Robert M. Price. Isn't it Von Junst? Junst, I'd say. Nameless Cults? Yeah, that's who it was written by. But you said you were on about, like, some Chaosium book. (laughs) What are you saying? You didn't read the original tome? I've actually got a point about that, but I'll save that for later. (laughs) Yes. But no, this was part of the Call of Cthulhu fiction line that uh, hopefully we'll see some more entries for later on down the line. Mm. Well, shall we kick off by exploring just who Robert E. Howard was? So Robert E. Howard was born in Pista, Texas, in 1906. His father, Isaac, was a travelling doctor working across central Texas during the oil boom. Hester, his mother, had tuberculosis and was an invalid for much of Robert E. Howard's life. Now, when I think about Howard, we say he was born in 1906. The fact Mm. that he dies in 1936 at the age of 30, spoilers, but, you know, (laughs) that's a long time ago, right? He's kind of like before the Second World War. Mm. He's, he's, He's a long time ago. It's kind of ancient history. But then I was thinking, well... I'm pretty sure my grandfather was born before him. Yeah. And I knew my my maternal grandfather. You know, I, I knew him pretty well. Oh, yeah. I knew him well. Um, so, you know, the fact that his life was cut short such a young age, if he'd lived on, we could well have, have known the guy. Yeah. And that kind of gives me a different perspective when I think about it in that way. It's suddenly, it's not, he's not ancient history anymore. Yeah, he would have been 59 when I was born. Hmm. So you could have known him as an old man. A few times in the podcast, we've talked about 
how young Lovecraft was when he died, comparatively. I mean, he was 46. He clearly had a lot more work potentially left in him. But thinking about it, I mean, I was working this out just before we started recording. Most of what Lovecraft is known for, most of what we consider to be his major works, were written in his 30s onwards, probably in his mid-30s onwards. Hmm. Robert E. Howard was dead by the time he was 30. I mean, he died when he was 30. And so comparing their careers, at the time Robert E. Howard died, I mean, mapping that onto Lovecraft, that was before he really got going in earnest. Thinking about what his early death there potentially denied us in terms of what he would have created, and that, I'd say, is far more significant than Lovecraft. Mm. Texas was turbulent at this time, changing from the frontier to a prosperous oil state. Boom towns were violent and very lawless places. And, you know, you said earlier about, yeah, we'll get to the fact that he had guns. He's from Texas. It's bloody obligatory <laughs> to have shitloads of guns. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that, but, I mean, this was at a time when there were still frontiersmen around, people who had fought in the wars against the Comanches. There were people who remembered the Civil War. He was born 40 years after mm. the Civil War ended, or less than 40 years after. There was also, I think, the wars going on with Mexico that were within living memory. So this was a violent, violent time. Certainly Mark Finn makes the point in Blood and Thunder that a lot of this must have fed into his worldview and the kinds of people he met and all these larger-than-life characters, violent men who appear in some form or another in his stories. Yeah, I mean, what we think of as the Wild West was a relatively short period, mm. but compared to his date of birth to me and you at least scott it's kind of comparable with the second world war to to, to yeah. us it's something that people would have been very familiar with it would been still be very much in the public consciousness um, and plenty of people affected directly by it you know around oh yeah yeah i mean i certainly grew up hearing lots of first-hand accounts of life during the second world war hmm so after years of moving around from town to town, the family finally settled in Cross Plains, Texas, in central Texas, when Robert was about 13 years old. This was a fairly quiet small community, but not long after, almost inevitably I guess, they discovered oil there, and it became another boomtown, expanding about tenfold in size in a very short period of time, and bringing in all the crime and violence and so on that the Howard family had seen elsewhere, and Robert E. Howard hated this. But, as I mentioned before, it certainly influenced his work, and I think it's fair to say that as the son of a doctor, he probably saw the outcome of a lot of this violence, people with injuries and all sorts as a result of fights. This probably, again, fed into his work. Yeah, it makes me think of There Will Be Blood, the film about a tech, well, not Texas, Californian oil man, I think, and yeah, reading his uh, reminiscences, there certainly was a lot of blood. I've got a, an extract from one of his letters about one of these. Shall I? Oh, yeah. This made me squirm. So uh, if you're of a nervous disposition, uh, it's a paragraph. So, But I'm just going to read this out because I thought this is a, a remarkable tale. This is from uh, 1933. My father recently had a small mishap which might well have proved serious but for his promptness in acting. He had just lanced an infected foot and laid the lancet on the small table when it slipped off and fell on his foot, sticking him 
through the shoe and into the flesh, into the bone, and cutting a small artery. The danger lay, of course, not in the actual cut, but in the corruption on the blade. Nothing like this had ever happened before to my father. In thirty-some-odd years of practising medicine, he instantly tore off his shoe, which was full of blood, split the wound open, letting it bleed as much as it would, and then... And this is the killer bit. And then he scraped the bone itself with a lancet. <laughs> All this without anything to lessen the pain, not even Novocaine. If you've ever felt anything rasping against the naked bone, you'll know how it felt. He cleaned the wound as well as he could and dressed it, then drove 30 miles to obtain Novocaine. <laughs> when he had the wound further enlarged and more of the bone scraped. This done and his foot redressed, he drove back home and went upon his business without further ado. He was out late making calls that night, up early at work the next morning, and in fact never did slacken up his work or slow down on account of the mishap. Not bad for a man well past 60. <laughs> well, one thing that you've got to bear in mind about a lot of these stories, though, and this is something that Mark Finn goes on about in Blood and Thunder, is that... The culture in which Robert E. Howard grew up with a lot of these frontiersmen and so on was one very much a people telling tall tales and exaggerating stuff for dramatic and comic effect. Mm. He does make the point several times in the book that where you've got things like this and his letters and the accounts of things that he had told to other people, you can't necessarily take them at face value, not because he was being disingenuous, but simply because the storytelling style that he employed in day-to-day -day life was one in which you just bigged these things up. And so it's quite possible that a lot of the details in that story were ones that he just fabricated. Aww. Or alternatively, maybe it really did fucking happen, in which case, <laughs> uh, All these injuries, this led to the dominant theme of his work, the conflict between corrupt civilization and the freedom of barbarism. Robert E. Howard sided with the latter, seeing too much of the oil industry in the former. And I think it's fair to say that in almost everything he wrote, there are elements of this. That it is sort of the untamed individual versus the corrupting influence of civilization. I mean, it's not just that, but it's the fact that he saw things in terms of the ebbs and flows of civilization, that his personal philosophy, which I'm, I'm sure you encountered plenty of times in his letters, Paul, was very much one that civilizations would grow to a certain point, become inherently corrupt, oh, yeah. and then something new and, and lean and hungry would come along and just knock them down, and the next civilization would grow in its place, and that this was an inevitable part of history and you know would just repeat itself over and over again because it's human nature and he always seemed to be on the side of the barbarous forces that was going to come along and destroy the existing order howard's parents relationship was strained despite isaac being a doctor robert was left to look after his mother as his father traveled on business hester was reportedly overbearing stopping robert from playing sports you know i would have thought that was actually the thing i'd wish would have happened with my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was a big deal to him, as we'll get into as as this goes on. Don't know if it came up in his letters, but one thing that Mark Finn picks up on is that a lot of Isaac Howard's travelling wasn't necessarily to do with 
the medicine that he was, for a start, I, I think just looking for excuses to get out of the house and get away from his family, but also that he seemed to be an absolute sucker for get-rich schemes. Mm. He'd go out and you know invest in all sorts of unwise things and take chances on really dubious propositions and so on. And it sounded like he was a character and a bit of a wide boy. So with all these strains in his life, it obviously affected young Robert E. Howard to some extent. And he suffered from night terrors and sleepwalking to the extent where Apparently, I think even well into adult life, he would actually tie himself to the bedstead at night so he wouldn't wander off. And later on in life, in adult life, he was dogged by depression and arguably paranoia. Some of the accounts of people who knew him seem to reflect that he had a very odd view of the world. He had many people he considered to be enemies, but I mean, that was just part of the vernacular at the time. They weren't like sworn enemies, they were just people who he'd had conflicts with. But it's also, he really seemed to be of the mindset that everyone was out to get him to some extent and that he was one man against the world. A voracious reader, Howard could read before he went to school and was often bored in class. There was no library in Cross Plains, so Howard bought books wherever he could. He was especially interested in history. Now, I've read accounts of him. I mean, as Scott says, a lot of these things, it's like, do we take them with a pinch of salt? I don't really have too much to base this on, but it does strike me as somebody who perhaps embellishes the truth a bit with some of his anecdotes and so on. But he uh, he claims to have like broken into schoolhouses and, and places to sort of take books, to sort of steal books, and he, he got quite a collection of them. And also that he he was kind of viewed almost to have an eidetic memory to, to be able to, to read things and, and to be able yeah. to quote poetry on just like one or two readings and so on. In his letters and his writing, he, he clearly has absorbed a lot of information, particularly given that I think he finishes school at about age 17 or something. Oh, yeah, dear God. I mean, for someone with little formal education, I mean, some of the history that he was just rattling off in his correspondence and in conversation with people was incredibly detailed. You know, he clearly wasn't a scholar, but he was a fantastically effective autodidact. In much the same way with Lovecraft. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in so many ways, the two men were almost polar opposites in a lot of their attitudes. Mm. But, you know, in those respects, they were eerily alike. Yeah, I mean, Lovecraft comes from a sort of a moneyed background, although they were kind of on their uppers a bit mm. as time went on. Whereas Howard comes from... I don't think it's fair to say working class because his father was a doctor, but not a wealthy, prosperous background, no. I get the impression, I mean, part of that was just because of the economy of the time and that a lot of the work that Isaac Howard did was paid for in barter or was done for people who didn't have much money themselves. Mm. And part of it just seemed to be the fact that he was into all these get-rich schemes and so on. So I think he probably squandered a lot of the money that the family earned. As we'll get into later, Robert seemed to end up responsible for a lot of the family's finances, particularly when it came to his mother's medical treatment. And when things weren't good for him financially, hmm. then the family suffered. A book about British history led to his obsession with Picts. This persisted throughout his career with Picts, the default noble savages in his stories. He wrote an entire series about a Pictish king called King Bran Mac Morn. Mm. Some of these are great stories, and a few of them really sort of tie in with the Cthulhu mythos as well. They're great adventure stories. 
But the pinks just turn up all over the place. They they turn up in the Conan stories. It's like when he read them and heard these stories of this lost group of people driven out of the civilized parts of Britain and into the wilds by invading forces and so on. It's like something clicked with him and he just thought, these are the people I love. And they just keep turning up over and over again in different forms. And because there's so little known about them, they were like this blank template in which he could superimpose a lot of other things. The version of the the picks that he uses in the Conan stories, for example, actually, in terms of their representation, owe, owe a hell of a lot more to the Comanche people that he would have encountered than the actual historical picks. But he still uses the name picks to represent them. Much of his adolescent reading came from the pulps, adventure mostly, but also psychology, mysticism, and even yoga. As we've mentioned, however, one of his biggest influences was the oral history that he picked up from the people around him. In particular, it was the tall tales of the former frontiersmen and the way that they were told. It was almost like the kind of oral storytelling of the heroic sagas of of old, just a more modern version of them. He learned how to tell these stories and, in fact, when he was writing his stories, according to people who encountered him, who knew him in life, he would sit there at his typewriter writing these things and speaking them all, more often shouting them aloud as he typed, which made them feel like oral or campfire tales. Howard claimed to have heard Irish folk tales from his mother, although her family was generations removed from Ireland. This didn't stop her from affecting an Irish brogue. This wasn't something she did all her life. Apparently, at some point during her life, she just decided that she was going to put on an Irish accent and did so for the rest of her life, which is fucking weird. (laughs) Aunt May Bohannon, a former slave who worked in the Howard household, told Robert Howard African-American folktales. These influenced his work, especially Pigeons from Hell. Pigeons from Hell is lifted almost wholesale from one of the stories she told him. It's an interesting parallel to the Dunwich Horror, with this whole idea of pigeons sort of embodying the spirits of the dead being representatives, not psychopomps the same way as whippoorwills mm. are, but sort of being these corrupt representations of the spirits of the dead. Again, it's so it's all spelt out in Finn's Blood and Thunder, but the whole story that she told him is there with a bit of embellishment as Pigeons from Hell. Howard had been writing for most of his life, but I think he really started seriously submitting stories at the age of 15, initially to Adventure, his favourite pulp. But this was unsuccessful. It took him years before he made his first pulp sale when he was 18, uh, which was still pretty damn young to be starting, but he made his first pulp sale to Weird Tales. And over the course of the next five years or so, there were some ebbs and flows. It took a while before he was selling stuff steadily, but eventually he did start selling work consistently enough that he managed to pack in all the part-time and menial jobs that he'd been doing and just became a full-time writer. Much to the derision and, I think, astonishment of a lot of the people in town, because this was a very sort of blue-collar, working-class area with everyone was doing manual trades or working in retail. It was all centred around the oil industry. And the idea that a man would be doing work that, for a start, didn't involve going out and about and didn't involve physical labour, 
was just bizarre to his neighbours, and they, they generally mocked him for it. I wonder if all the more so because he didn't look like one might picture a typical mm. academic author type. He looked like a physical labourer. He was yeah. a big, well-built, strong guy. So he you know, perhaps went against what people would expect. I mean, we'll talk a bit, I think, quite soon about how he got into boxing, but he was very interested yeah, in building up his body. Apparently, his workout routine involved chopping wood primarily, that he would not only chop wood for the Howard household, but he'd basically chop as much wood as the neighbours and his friends and so on wanted, just so he'd get that workout there with the axe. And mm. you know, apparently... From the time he put his mind to it, he put on something like, I, I can't remember, it's like 30 or 40 pounds of muscle over the course of six months. In his late teens, Howard began to frequent the ice house in Cross Plains. They manufactured and sold ice. What a surprise. Locally. After hours, it sold beer illegally and hosted boxing matches, which Howard joined in enthusiastically. This was a huge part of his life. As I mentioned there, I mean, he was building himself up physically, but this was primarily for the boxing. He absolutely loved this. This was the physical outlet that he had been looking for all this time. I think he had aspirations of becoming a boxer, but it was certainly his main hobby, his main outlet. And, you know, it gave him an opportunity to, I think, get a lot of the frustrations of his life out of his system. In one letter, Howard talked about how he would prefer to be a professional athlete than a writer, much to Lovecraft's horror. This isn't one letter. This is this is an ongoing back and forth yeah. about the, oh, sorry, I misunderstood you. And uh, no, 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 I mean this. Yes, 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 I mean this. Oh, my God, it just went back and forth. But basically, yeah, I think Lovecraft, very much a fan of these kind of academic and the height of achievement is to be a great artist. Howard isn't. That isn't his opinion. Mm. Well, well, we'll talk more about this, but basically he... Uh, yeah, he liked boxing and uh, he liked earning money. <laughs> and he was good at writing, so he earned money from writing. But also, I think from my reading, boxing was a massively popular thing at that period. Oh, God, yes, you know, it yes. still is a, a very significant sport, but it's, you know, it's been surpassed by other things, I would argue, you know, in the modern age, largely. Yeah. I, I don't think it's like the, the top sport in terms of popularity. That'd be things like football and so on. Yeah, I mean, Finn makes that point very much in Blood and Thunder, where he talks about how it was like the most popular sport at the time, that, mm. say, football, American football, it was something that kids played at school and college, but it wasn't really the big thing that it is in the US now. Baseball was a bit more popular, but boxing did seem to be the king of the sports. Mm. So on top of all this, Robert E. Howard also went to business school around this time or a bit after. This was something that his father had talked him into because it was like a career that he could fall back on if the writing didn't work. But Howard saw it in a very different way and basically went there just so he could learn how to type properly and learn shorthand. And as soon as he learned those, he fucked off out of it. Yeah. In June 1930, Howard wrote a fan letter to Weird Tales praising the rats in the walls. Heard of that somewhere. <laughs> Farnsworth Wright, forwarding it to Lovecraft, initiated their friendship. Hey, he plays matchmaker. <laughs> this led to uh, Howard corresponding with other members of the Lovecraft circle, including Clark Ashton Smith, August Derleth, no one's perfect, and E. Hoffman Price. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think Howard you know, was quite as voluminous a correspondent as Lovecraft was, because, well, 
who the hell was, but he did seem to write a hell of a lot of letters to the Weird Tales crowd, much as Lovecraft did. When the Great Depression hit, Howard lost his life savings in a series of bank collapses. Economic hardship also caused some of the pulps to go under and Weird Tales to drop to buy monthly. Yeah, and this was at a bad time for the family anyway. His mother's health was getting worse and the medical bills were mounting. Can't have been easy for them. A little after this, in 1934, Howard met Novaline Price. She was an aspiring writer who had dated one of his friends for a while and who, having heard that the circle of friends included this now relatively famous pulp writer, wanted to meet Howard. And almost immediately after they met, they started dating. And this became a relationship pretty quickly, the only serious romance of Robert E. Howard's life. But it wasn't a happy one. They really seemed to be on again, off again. They never seemed to be quite in sync with what they wanted from each other. And yeah, it, it all sounded messy. Price wrote a memoir of Robert E. Howard, One Who Walked Alone, published in 1986 and filmed in 1996 as The Whole Wide World, starring Vincent Donofrio as Robert E. Howard and René Zellweger as Price. I'd never heard of that film. I know Paul's seen it. I have. Not for some time. Yeah, I watched it again last night. I mean, I think if it wasn't a biopic of Howard, I don't think I would have sat through it. But as it is, it's kind of got that charm because, you know, it's Robert E. Howard and I'm kind of interested in him and his writing. Um, it's, you know, largely a, I don't know, would you say it's a romance maybe? But also, I I don't know, Redding Zellweger never makes me warm to a film, <laughs> but um, that's just me. It's an interesting portrayal of the time and I think gives you some insight into Howard and the house that it's set in on the film looks very much like the Howard House, which you can see mm. if you look it up on YouTube, there's a tour of the Howard House. You know, you can actually go and visit his house. It's just a small, regular little house. And uh, yeah, it, it seems very uh, true to that. Yeah, and I think Vincent D'Onofrio was really quite good in the role. Yeah, I think he sort of captured the the physicality of Howard quite well. Price began dating another of Howard's friends without telling him then left town for grad school. This happened while Howard's finances were in trouble and his mother's health was failing, deepening his depression. I mean, in the film, that's very much portrayed as it was kind of an on-again, off-again relationship that Howard wasn't committing to. Mm. So uh, Price looked elsewhere for romance, really. Yeah, but I think the thing that hit Howard the most was the fact that she was dating a friend of his and he didn't know about it and i think it was more the shock of discovering that mm. you know that was mm. the case regardless of whether or not he was standoffish with her or wasn't committed to the relationship or whatever that still got to be a hell of an emotional blow oh for sure yeah 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 i didn't mean to uh, put it that way all of this culminated on the 11th of June, 1936. Robert E. Howard spoke to one of the nurses who was looking after his mother, whose condition had got a hell of a lot worse. She'd had surgery the previous year for gallbladder problems, and her tuberculosis was getting worse, and it just seemed to be this cascade of one problem after another. And at this stage, 
if I remember correctly, she'd gone into a coma. The nurse believed that she wasn't going to come out of it, that, you know, his mother was dying and would be dead really quite soon. I mean, it sounds like the people around Howard knew about his depression to the extent where his father had actually, prior to this, hidden all the guns in the house because obviously he he feared the worst. What he didn't know about was that the, the gun that Howard kept in the glove compartment of his car, because apparently there'd been a few robberies on the highway, and he kept it there for safety, just in case the car was, was carjacked. And so, yeah, he went out to the car, and he shot himself in the head, and apparently it took something like ten hours for him to die after that, but the following day, his mother died as well. Mm. While Howard didn't leave a suicide note, the piece of paper was found in his wallet, inscribed with a couplet from Viola Garvin's The House of Caesar, not a work, an author or work I'm familiar with, but it states, All fled, all done, so lift me on the pyre. The past is over, and the lamps expire. He and his mother were buried in Greenleaf Cemetery in Brownwood. Their house is now a museum. Now, about his death, I mean, it's very, um, obviously very significant that his mother, he's told that his mother is definitely dying and she isn't going to come out of the coma and he goes out and shoots himself. You know, I've heard various sort of theories that he had a kind of Oedipus complex or that, you know, he was so distraught about his mother's death. But one that really struck me and made me feel sadder about it than anything else was um, I was watching a... Uh, a YouTube by a guy called Michael Vaughan who talks very passionately oh, yeah, about yeah. Howard and his works. Yes, I, oh, I like his videos, yeah. Right, and, and he put forward the idea that it wasn't that Howard was overcome with grief about his mother dying that led to him killing himself, but rather that he felt suddenly released from mm. the obligation of looking after his mother because it had been his job to look after his mother. Now that obligation was gone. He was free to do what he had wanted to do for several years, which was to end his life. Which is, I don't know, that just seems sadder because he'd only been living to look after his mother and once she's gone, he feels like, oh, I can just do myself in now. That just seems more poignant somehow to me. But also very plausible. Mm, Totally. This is the thing about the the relationships in the Howard household, which just seems so fucking weird. I mean, we touched upon the fact that, yeah, all right, the relationship between Isaac and Hester Howard was a bit strained and he was always off running around Texas. But Mm. he was a fucking doctor. His wife was chronically ill, yet it it was down to their son to act as a caregiver, to provide the financial support, to keep the household going. Howard wrote in his correspondence about how he'd sometimes, towards the end, have to give up writing for months, just basically to act as a full-time caregiver, considering (laughs) there was a doctor in the family. That just seems really weird. Yeah, I can't really figure that all. I mean, I feel like I've scraped the surface on my reading and understanding mm. of, of Robert E. Howard, his family, and his uh, and his works. Really, I haven't, you know, read all of of any of that. So, I feel I've got a picture of it, but not an, an in depth understanding enough to 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 really dig into that. Well, and also it's. 
tempting, but it's perhaps not a good idea to go back and try to psychoanalyze someone mm. from their correspondence from, from secondhand accounts. This is one of the problems with earlier attempts to provide a biography of uh, Robert E. Howard. For example, I mean, you may have seen I winced a bit when you mentioned the Oedipal aspect, because that's something that Elspraag de Camp, mm. who I'm sure we'll talk about later, made a lot of reference to. De Camp wrote uh, you know, quite a lot about Robert E. Howard, despite the fact that he'd never met him, because he picked up all these secondhand stories from E. Hoffman Price, who had met Howard, but only for one day, mm. and yet became this authority. He'd go off and tell all these stories about Howard, about his strange psychology, his family relationships, and so on, and all these explanations, which de Camp then took as gospel and embellished and... It got to the stage where other fans and people who knew him were gathering together all the actual stories of his life and trying to publish those in fanzines and small press publications through the 60s and 70s, basically to combat a lot of the stuff that was coming out of De Camp. As an aside, one of the people who jumped in to defend the psychology of both Howard and also the Conan stories, I mean, this just blew my mind when I read it, was someone we'd mentioned in passing the podcast before, and that was Frederick Vertum. Frederick Vertum was best known for writing The Stuction of the Innocent, this uh, polemic against uh, horror comics in the 1950s that led to the creation of the Comics Code. And right. he was very worried that comics caused juvenile delinquency and created this, this moral outrage. He was also the psychologist who interviewed and created the profile of Albert Fish, which is where we discussed him before. But apparently, he was also a big Robert E. Howard fan and wrote about him for fanzines in the 1970s, which okay. I, I know. It's kind of weird. It really is. Yeah. Somebody else that commented on uh, his death, of course, was uh, Lovecraft. On hearing of Howard's death, Lovecraft wrote, that such a genuine artist should perish while hundreds of insincere hacks continue to concoct spurious ghosts and vampires and spaceships and occult detectives is indeed a sorry piece of cosmic irony. I do wonder whether that thing about occult detectives was a dig at Seabury Quinn. I can't remember who that is. Oh, Seabury Quinn was probably the biggest author that Weird Tales had at the time that Lovecraft right. and Smith and Howard were writing. He primarily wrote a series of occult detective stories about a character called uh, Jules de Gradin. His stories were considered to be the high watermark in terms of the popularity and critical reception within Weird Tales. And he was always the presence behind whom Lovecraft and Howard and Smith were, were lagging. But at the same time, People don't generally remember him now. I think there's also the elephant in the room with Howard that he was a racist. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that is talked about and acknowledged absolutely correctly with Lovecraft in terms of the impact it has on the gaming and the fiction, but which I don't see discussed very much with Howard. Howard, it seems to be, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I, I haven't seen it discussed so much, but it seems to get a bit glossed over, especially in gaming. Yeah. You know, there's none of that with reference to the Conan role-playing games. Yeah. And you know, as a white guy, I don't really feel uh, I don't feel qualified to explore the, the, the racist element too much, but there's no doubt, you know, reading the first 
book of letters, not so much the second one, but the first book of letters between Lovecraft and Howard, it did feel almost like they were having a competition to see who, you know, who was the most racist. I think part of that, I really don't want to make excuses for him, and please don't think that I am. I think part of that was that, unlike Lovecraft, he was very much a reflection of the time and place that he grew up in. Lovecraft's racism, I think, was egregious, even for his social circles and his era. Howard's one, considering that he was living in rural Texas at a time when people still remember the Civil War and there were the, there were still the, mm. the Mexican Wars within living memory and the, you know, the Indian Wars, as they were called, the wars against the Comanche. And there was a lot of violent racial history surrounding the area that he, he grew up in. It would have been, I'd say, almost unthinkable that that wouldn't have shaped him somehow. That's not to say this is in any way excusable and it's not going to be an affront to a lot of modern readers, but I don't think it, it's as unexpected, not, not unexpected, but not, not as egregious as, as Lovecraft's very exceptional racism. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. I don't really want to get into comparative racism no. because then you go down the path of, well, was Lovecraft as racist as Hitler or something? <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know. It just gets nuts. Um, but I think maybe Howard hasn't been tagged with the racist brush as much, perhaps because he didn't write about contemporary issues as much. Yes, he did write some detective fiction and so on, but most of his work that he's known for is the kind of historical stuff where maybe it's not as in your face. You know, he's not writing about like black people in New York or, or Italian people in New York and, and, and complaining about them. It's maybe a bit more hidden. Actually, I'd argue with that, Paul, because I think you're right in saying that it, you know the, the work that people remember him for, and perhaps influences our gaming, is very much that ill. But mm. that is actually quite a small subset of what he wrote. The majority of what he wrote was contemporary. And... It's really difficult to pin down on that front because some of it, yeah, is quite shockingly racist. A lot of it isn't. And this is where it gets complicated because I think like Lovecraft, his racial views changed over his life and he became less racist as he got older. Not that he had much of a chance to do so, but also... I think, like I say, what he was putting in his stories was very much a reflection of his culture. But perhaps, certainly thinking about it from the point of view of his fiction, a lot of it is surprisingly, I don't want to say anti-racist, or but certainly from a, a sort of political perspective, is very much against the racial beliefs and the political beliefs you'd expect him to have from that time. There are some surprisingly nuanced and sensitive representations of people who weren't like him in a way you'd never find in Lovecraft. He seemed to be a very contradictory author in that respect, in that he seemed to be able to get into the mindset of people who weren't like him to, in a way that Lovecraft never could, mm. see people who weren't like him as human beings. Yeah. There is a comment upon this in the beginning of Nameless Cults, the aforementioned Chaosium Fiction Collection, uh, which states, The stories herein are complete and unexpurgated. Some contain racist stereotypes and references. Readers can judge for themselves. Hmm. So it is at least addressed in his mythos fiction. From what I've read, some of the 
versions of his works that have been put out over the years have been expurgated, have had the language mm. altered to be less offensive. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's... Well, I, I came across this, actually, because I was listening to a few of his stories that they've had readings on YouTube. Right. The likes of the Blackstone, I think, is the one where I notice it the most. Because one of the things I find with audiobooks, if I just sit and listen to them, they just kind of wash over me and I don't really take much in. So I sit down with the text that I've got and read along to the the audiobook as it's been spoken. I find it's quicker for me to get through a text like that. Mm. All right. And I kept finding with the Blackstone compared to the version in Nameless Cults, I kept getting lost because I was thinking, hang on a minute, this isn't what's on the page in front of me. That There was quite a bit of it that had been changed. Would you say that was about race or was that just... I mean, what kind of content was changed? I mean, don't... Uh, half and half. There were, there were some bits that did relate to particular descriptions. Others, it was just different choices of words. Some whole sentences were reconstructed. Oh, like it had just been re- half rewritten, re-edited? Yeah. Hmm. But only in certain sections. It wasn't, like, throughout. Right. Mm. Interesting. I think that's probably quite common with a lot of the pop writers and, and with Robert E. Howard particularly because he did go through for a start multiple drafts of his stories and then the editors would rewrite sections for the pulp so quite often his stories were were heavily rewritten in fact I mean some of the ones that were published posthumously like in some of his boxing stories were rewritten to feature different characters and stuff like that so they fit in with the house style when they were reprinted and so there's all these different versions around. Plus, he kept all the original drafts of his work and the unsold drafts and so on in this big chest that he'd, he'd keep in his room, the trunk, as it's known, which was just filled up with all these manuscripts and became something of a holy grail to Howard scholars after his death and has passed through multiple hands and I think is finally now in the hands of academics. That's not even taking into account what happened with the Conan stories in El Sprague de Camp, which we'll talk about later. But there are so many conflicting versions of his work out there. It's not surprising that you get these these mismatches and conflicts, even without any concepts of censorship. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he would, I think for some of the Conan stories, because they were selling well, he went back and revised some earlier stories that featured one of his some of his other characters and just redressed them. Well, that's how Conan started. Just kind of reusing the same material. It's almost like taking a scenario and thinking, well, I can't sell it for that company for their game. I'm just going to redress it and sell it under this other license or whatever. You know, it's, it's like taking something. So he was a very money-driven person. I think, you know, he wrote for money. And, and pragmatic is a good word for it. I, you know, I was considering... This, I don't know why I'm picking it up for the podcast, but <laughs> A Means to Freedom, this big heavyweight book, it's called A Means to Freedom. And I was thinking, kind of thought that was a weird title. And then I read one line in one of his letters, and he's saying, Writing has always been a means to an end I hope to achieve freedom. Mm-hmm. So that his writing was a means to freedom. It was just a way of him making enough money to be able to live how he wanted to live. He says, if it was in my power to pen the grandest masterpiece the world has ever seen, I wouldn't hit the first key or dip the pen in the ink unless I knew there was a chance for me to make some money out of it. I do wonder, though, we talked about the way that Howard built up his own legend through the things he said. and there, For example, he gave so many different accounts of how he came up with the idea of Conan and what the inspirations were and how he developed it. I think there's a, some of that here as well. 
in that, yes, I mean, he was commercially driven. He was always trying to sell his work. He was always trying to find markets for it and revising it and so on. But I don't think you get to be that prolific a writer in the first place unless you love writing. The fact that he was doing it from an early age, that he was, his career lasted, what, 12 years. He sold his first piece when he was 18. He died when he was 30. That's 12 years. How many millions and millions of words worth of fiction did he publish in that time? Yeah, all right. I mean, it paid the bills. But if he didn't like it, he could have probably made more money working out in the oil industry. The oil industry is very uh, up and down, I guess. Depending, a lot of people went there hoping to make money out of that, a bit like they did out of gold. But I mean, from what I read, he he was making you know pretty good money for that mm. area, you know, oh, yeah. um, from his writing. So it wasn't like he was scraping a living like Lovecraft did. Yeah, you know, he was making a, a reasonable amount of a living wage, and it was all coming from his writing. Yeah, I think he must have loved writing. And clearly, he was very good at it. But equally, you know, he saw it as a means to an end. I think he saw it because I guess he fell into doing it because he did love it and he was good at it. We tend to like the things we're good at. That was a way of making money. So that all kind of went hand in hand, I think. He certainly had a commercial instinct that Lovecraft never had. Almost anti-commercial instinct with Lovecraft. You know, he would almost not chase after money that he was owed and and do loads of work on things that weren't going to make him any return or whatever i get the feeling i can't remember actually instances but you know lovecraft might have like not published something if he felt it had to compromise it i'm not sure if that was literally true but i feel like howard would have been quite happy to compromise something you know you need to rewrite something or you know if they said we want it done this way okay i'll do it that way bang it out there you go i'm not saying it would be bad it would probably be great but you know you could just work to the market. The interesting contrast to all that is their attitude towards doing revision work for other people. This was Lovecraft's bread and butter. This is what he probably made as much money from, more money from maybe even than his novel writing. Howard did that once in his career. He revised a novel for a friend Mm. and absolutely fucking hated it and never went back to doing it. I guess if he were thinking of purely what could be commercial work, I would have thought that's potentially easier work, or it certainly was for Lovecraft. I guess it depends on the person. It seems like Howard, maybe it was easier for him to write stuff from scratch or revise his own work. Revising somebody else's work is a very different skill, I think. I think it's notable, you know, kind of looking at the, the relationship between Lovecraft and Howard, I think it's notable where they overlap in interest there's a lot of differences as we said but there's a lot of overlap as well and one of them i think is they're both anti-modernists and i think tolkien you know is put into this bracket by some people as well as, as sort of harking back to a better times and howard one of the quotes he says i was born about 100 years too late that's not my fault it's my misfortune in terms of his view of humanity scott you referred to this earlier howard a bit different to Lovecraft but you know I think the two would very much agree with this he says uh, I agree with you that the restless super vital type is vanishing that is a natural result of civilization generation by generation men will grow more flabby slothful and effeminate until at the last very crest pinnacle and epitome of civilization will be reached in a blind helpless crawling human worm (laughs) 
And it kind of brings to mind Lovecraft's thing about like, the downfall of humanity and going into a, a new dark age. Yeah. It seems like we'll we'll climb to a peak with civilization and achievement, and then it'll all be shit. Whereas Howard sort of thinks that we're constantly getting worse, and you know we're we're just kind of devolving, going backwards almost. Different to Lovecraft, but ultimately we're not going in the right direction somehow. Well, I, I think with Howard that there was perhaps a bit more optimism in that he did tend to see that as cyclical. That he saw that. I think in his work and in his other correspondence, maybe not in this case, but he saw this as very much the ebbs and flows of cultures throughout history, but that humanity itself was always this sort of seething mass of, of battling factions against each other. And that as one civilization fell, another one would always be there to take its place. And maybe that's more optimistic. <laughs> So we spent this episode talking about Robert E. Howard, the man. We have another episode next time on Robert E. Howard's work. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast and, we hope, other episodes. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon at any stage. And we have a few new backers to thank by name. Starting off with a thanks going out to Matt Grinstead. And thank you very much goes out to, and I hope I pronounced this right, a panda bear. And thank you to Tom. And thanks to Brendan Whitty. And thank you very much to Adam F. Thank you very much to Stephen D. Warble. Thanks, Ronald Lewis. And thank you very much to Alexander LaRock. If we have completely mangled any of your names, please do let us know. And we'll try to do better next time. If you've enjoyed the show, one of the ways you can help us is by spreading the news, letting people know with a review on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcast provider may be. Alternatively, just mentioning it on social media, telling your friends about it, or standing on street corners shouting at strangers, they're all good. Definitely advocate the last one there. You do not go out on the street corner shouting at people, Matt. <laughs> no, I just said I'd advocate it as a means because I don't use any of the platforms online or anything like that. So You'd advocate it for other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> that sums it up for this time. Uh, so join us for more Robert E. Howard next time on The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. And with that, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.